Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. I would say that as a founder, he was not in the first tier that we reserve for the likes of uh, Madison and Hamilton and Jefferson and, of course, Washington himself. Um, But remember, he was only 32 years old when he arrived in Philadelphia. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Keith Machowski talking about the early life of founder Rufus King. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Iron and Paper, purveyor of authentic artifacts of the American Revolution. Visit them at ironandpaper.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're talking to Keith Machowski, Journal of the American Revolution contributor, about the early life of founder Rufus King. Keith Machowski is working on a multiple-part series on the life of Rufus King for the Journal of the American Revolution, and part one is available now. While we focus only on really the early years uh, of, of Rufus King's life in this episode, we do get through some of the most important, including his service in the American Revolution uh, and his role in the Constitutional Convention. As we'll hear, he served on more committees than anyone else. Even though we think of Rufus King sometimes as a forgotten founding father, hopefully with Keith Machowski's interview today, uh, you'll find out that he was one of the most important. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Keith Machowski. Keith Machowski, Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Tell us about your background. Uh, Sure. Uh, I'm a librarian and professor at New York City College of Technology, which is part of CUNY, and I work in downtown Brooklyn. I received my bachelor's degree in history and my master's in library science in Texas in the 1990s, and then I moved to New York City about 20-some-odd years ago, and... um, Got my master's degree in interdisciplinary studies at the CUNY Graduate Center about 15 years ago with an emphasis on 18th through 20th century politics and culture. And for the last 10 years, I have volunteered with the National Park Service at various sites uh, at Ellis Island, at Theodore Roosevelt Birthplace, at Grant's Tomb, and currently at Federal Hall. And I co-teach a course called Learning Places, Understanding the City, And I'm a big believer in place-based learning. And that can be a bit of a challenge in New York City, where the mantra really is always to tear down and build anew. And I think that Federal Hall is a case study in that. Um, The original Federal Hall was built by the British as City Hall in the early 1700s. And it was where the Stamp Act Congress met in 1765. And it was later the site of the Confederation Congress in the late 1780s. And then it was Federal Hall where Washington was sworn in and where the first U.S. Congress met. And yet, despite all of that, it was all torn down in 1812. And then about 20 years later, 
they put the customs house there and it became the uh, sub treasury building. And so um, thankfully we still have the uh, Rufus King Manor in Jamaica, Queens though. Uh, that one is still there. So thankful for that. What first drew your interest in this topic? Well, um, what drew me to it, you know, the, this is all very new to me. Uh, my family was originally from Massachusetts, but we moved away when I was young. And uh, since moving back to the Northeast, I've gotten reacquainted um, with a lot of extended family. And a few years ago, an uncle very generously took me to Lexington and Concord, which sort of lit a spark. And then about two years ago, a friend and I took a day trip to Philadelphia to visit the Museum of the American Revolution. And even with those things, I still kind of thought of the early American period as what you might call dead history, you know, with no relevance to us today, you know, in the manner that, say, the Civil War and Reconstruction might have. But um, really, in these past few years, um, I've been dispelled at that notion. And it seems that in our current historical moment, uh, it's more essential than ever to go all the way back to the beginning. And, uh, and that's where I am right now. So enjoying uh, studying Rufus King and his life and times um, a great deal. What do we know about King's family history? The King family history, well, that's an interesting and uh, much more complicated uh, question than it might first appear. But uh, the first uh, King in America, if you will, is usually considered to be uh, Rufus King's grandfather who um, his name may have been John King, but uh, then again, his name may have been Richard King. And he may have been born in Plymouth, Massachusetts, or he may have been born in England, although there's some speculation as to where in England. And uh, one of the reasons for this um, uh, uncertainty is that in the years prior to the uh, revolution, his son, Richard King, who had become a wealthy merchant in, in Scarborough, Massachusetts, which is uh, now part of Maine. But um, um, his records were uh, burned. His, uh, his office was, um, and his, uh, his home and his workplace were both ransacked by mobs, uh, primarily by people who owed him money um, and people who um, felt that he was a loyalist, that he might have been, um, you know, um, too loyal to, 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 to King George. And, um, so, um, you know, part of the reason why we, uh, we, we're, we don't fully understand is just because of, uh, what these mobs, uh, did to Richard King and his, um, and his home and his property. So it's a very interesting story. You describe his younger years as having taken place during a time of mob activity. How did that shape his worldview? Uh, well, I think that um, mob activity shaped Rufus King uh, fundamentally. Um, as I said, mobs destroyed his father's home and office uh, in various home invasions over the years. And um, they would do things like um, destroy crops and uh, throw dan dead animals into wells and things like that. And um, mob activity in the years just prior to and after the uh, revolution were actually quite common. And um, usually what mobs would do was uh, they would punish someone uh, just to the point, um, there was actually a method to the madness, if you will. And they would um, punish someone just to the point where they would finally capitulate. 
for instance, uh, if they wanted a judge to step down or if they wanted a tax collector to agree to not collect, uh, um, you know, stamp act, uh, stamp act, uh, uh, duties, or if they wanted a political figure to uh, leave office, you know, usually they would um, apply enough pressure uh, until said individual stepped down. And um, there was very little uh, like tarring and feathering, for instance, or, or even murder. Usually they would perform some act of uh, ritual humiliation, if you were. And mob activity was essentially a, a form of frontier justice. And, uh, but that didn't really make things any easier for Richard King, Rufus King's father, whose, uh, again, his home and property were destroyed many times in the years prior to the, to the, um, to the revolution. And his, his lawyer was uh, none other than John Adams. And um, Adams himself could never fully achieve uh, full compensation or justice for his client, Richard King. And uh, King, he died, um, he died a broken man essentially, in uh, March of 1775, just a, a few weeks prior to Lexington and Concord. How did King view revolutionary tensions as a young man? Well, I think at first Rufus King was uh, probably ambivalent. He was kind of sitting on the fence uh, like a lot of um, people in colonial America were at the time. You know, he lived something of a of a cloistered life, if you will. He he went to a private school in a very scenic community, and his father was something of a loyalist. And uh, Rufus was uh, attending Harvard College when the war b- broke out, and he did not leave school or put on a uniform. You know, he his his education was just so important to him. And so when um, when 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 war breaks out in Lexington and Concord, which again in, in his home state of Massachusetts, he he essentially stays put and he um, he continues um, with his studies at Harvard College and uh, finally graduates in the summer of 1777, and he moves to uh, Newburyport, Newburyport, Massachusetts, shortly thereafter, and he studies under a very important figure named Theophilus Parsons eventually becomes the, um, the, the chief judge of the state of Massachusetts in the early 18, early 1800s. So um, he, was, um, he was becoming um, increasingly in the Patriot camp as the war um, gets underway. But, um, but at this point in time, not really to the extent that he's willing to put it all aside and, uh, and join the Continental Army or, or a militia or anything like that. Could you talk about King's military service? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it was brief, but, uh, in, uh, but formative. In the summer of 1778, which this would be a year after Harvard College, and he's there in Newport, um, he eventually becomes an officer in the Massachusetts uh, forces that unsuccessfully tried to take Newport, Rhode Island back from the British. And he's a staff officer. He's a major serving under the command of John Glover. And it was actually all very uneventful, except for the Battle of Quaker Hill in late August of 1778. And uh, basically, the only real combat he saw was in the, 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 the staged retreat when the, the, um, the Patriots uh, you know, retreat under fire. 
And uh, he musters out uh, just a week later, in the first week of September of 1778. And uh, it's interesting because in later years, he never really played up his military experience. Uh, he seemed at best ambivalent uh, to organizations like the Society of the Cincinnati, you know, in which he could have been a member, you know, uh, because he'd been an officer. So, um, but I think it was important to him because um, uh, he met uh, people like John Hancock there. He saw the first uh, Rhode Island regiment, the first regiment um, of African-Americans in American history who took part in that action. And um, so I think it was, you know, somewhat important to his development. And uh, I'm sure it gave him a fair amount of credibility in his later years um, as a politician when, uh, you know, he could say that he he had uh, indeed served uh, against the British during the war. So um, so it played a role in his uh, in his life and development. Where did King fall politically after the war? Well, he. um as I said, he leaves the um, the military in September of 1778, and he goes back to Newport very quickly and continues with his law studies and uh, eventually passes the bar in 1780 and begins to practice law uh, quite successfully. And in July of 1783, he is um, uh, elected by his neighbors to the Massachusetts General Court which is to say he's part now of the the lower house of the state legislature. And uh, eventually he is um, appointed to the uh, Confederation Congress. And um, so he goes to Trenton, New Jersey in December of 1784. And um, in early um, January 1785, he settles in, uh, in New York City and he's part of the Confederation Congress, uh, which is meeting at, um, at City Hall, which later becomes um, Federal Hall. Uh, the Confederation Congress is an interesting uh, episode because there's a tendency to think that not much happened in the Confederation Congress, but um, uh, many important things that uh, still play out in our you know, current world uh, um, were, were, were done in the Confederation Congress. And um, one thing that concerned King greatly was uh, westward expansion. And he was especially concerned about lawlessness and legality. And he was concerned, for instance, about um, how squatters uh, might impact the process of land acquisition as, um, as white Americans uh, moved, moved ever westward and how deeds and titles of sale would become legally binding. And um, so he was greatly concerned about these types of things. He was also concerned about the expansion of slavery into the territories, uh, which he was against. And uh, he helps write the land ordinance of 1785 and the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. And um, this is why uh, later the states admitted to the Union from north of the Ohio, uh, north of the Ohio River uh, were free states. And it's also why, if you're flying over the, uh, you know, if you're flying across the country and you look down over, say, um, you know, parts of Wisconsin and Michigan, and everything is very neatly gridded, uh, that actually had to do with, um, with, um, 
with these uh, land ordinances that were passed with King's help in the 1780s. And uh, a real turning point in this time is Shays' Rebellion. And uh, the insurrection uh, took place in his home state after all. And um, one historian uh, writing in the 1960s um, posits that it was a fear of anarchy and disorder that made King a nationalist at the Constitutional Convention because in this period, he's not really a full-blown, what we would now call federalist just yet. He was still, um, it was all kind of incremental and um, he's somewhat ambivalent actually about the Constitutional Convention. Uh, But once he's finally there, he arrives in Philadelphia in uh, May of uh, 1787, and uh, incrementally, he's, um, he becomes increasingly a Federalist um, in that, um, that long, hot summer of 1787. As a Federalist, who were his allies and what were their legislative priorities? Well, um, his allies in the uh, coming years uh, are people like Madison and uh, John Jay, and uh, especially Alexander Hamilton, who was a good friend and good ally. And uh, King, um, King was a very strong um, ally of Hamilton when Hamilton was the Secretary of the Treasure, Treasury. And um, King is a supporter of the First Bank of the United States, for instance. Uh, he supported uh, federal assumption of revolutionary war debts. And he, he later supports the John Jay Treaty and uh, was actually uh, with Hamilton uh, that King addressed an angry crowd at the Tontine Coffee House in July of 1795, trying to counter opposition to, to the Jay Treaty. And uh, he was a co-author, too, of uh, the Camillus Defense, which uh, were letters um, you know, to newspapers uh, written kind of in the spirit of the Federalist Papers, uh, defending the Jay Treaty. And uh, so he was, uh, he was also, again, very much opposed to the expansion of slavery. And um, so King was very much part of that Federalist camp, very much an ally of Madison, of Jay, of Alexander Hamilton, and, uh, and, uh, and men like that. What role does King play in the transition from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution? Uh, well, he was, uh, he served on more committees at the Constitutional Convention than anyone else. I think it was six. And uh, he also uh, was part of the Committee of Style, which in, the, in um, September of 1787, um, the, the committee that was, whose task it was, was to put the final touches on the, um, the Constitution before the conventioners um, voted on it. And so he was very, um, he was very much uh, a part of things. He got there in May and he was there all the way through September. He was, on, he was only gone for about four days in that entire period. So he was very active. He was the only, he was the first New Englander to show up. So he was the first man from, uh, from New England to arrive in Philadelphia for the convention. And, um, so very active role and very active after that, because uh, of course it had to be uh, ratified by the by the states. And uh, so after the convention, 
he re uh, returns to Massachusetts and he's part of the Massachusetts uh, ratification um, uh, process. And uh, so Massachusetts ratifies the con uh, Constitution in February of 1788. And his work is essentially done uh, at that point. It's a turning point in his life. He and his wife, Mary, they'd had their first child in January of 1788, and uh, he's no longer a member of the Confederation Congress, and he helps to pass the Constitution. And um, so shortly after this, um, King, moves to, um, King moves to New York, where his uh, wife Mary, Mary Alsop, um, was from, and uh, eventually becomes a citizen of New York State and becomes a uh, senator. He's actually, um, what, along with Philip Schuyler, he's one of the uh, first two U.S. senators from the state of New York and uh, serving again in Federal Hall. So uh, he was at Federal Hall um, as a Confederation congressman, and now in, he's a member of the first United States Congress at Federal Hall. And um, so very big figure. What should King's ultimate legacy be in American history? Yeah, I really uh, think that King is one of the uh, unf uh, unfortunately forgotten figures in American history. And uh, I would say that as a founder, he was not in the first tier that we reserve for the likes of uh, Madison and Hamilton and Jefferson and, of course, Washington himself. Um, but remember, he was only 32 years old when he arrived in Philadelphia, and he was one of the, t the 10 youngest men there. And, uh, but he was quite active, as I point out, for um, all the reasons that I just mentioned a few, a few moments ago. And, uh, but that said, he was hugely important at the convention. And, um, and uh, then after that, he was a reliable, reliable Federalist in the first U.S. Congress. So he's helping uh, men like um, Hamilton, you know, um, get their agendas passed and um, he was a very skilled orator and uh, then in the mid 1790s he becomes uh, the US ambassador to London and he's there for um, <clears throat> until until the Jefferson administration so he's serving in London as the uh, US ambassador to the court of St. James um, through the latter years of the uh, Washington administration and through the Adams administration and then through the um uh the early parts of the jefferson administration and uh, but i think on a larger scale we have to remember that he lives until 1827 and uh, he was active in politics all the way through the um washington the years of the washington administration through the john quincy adams administration um, and uh, he ends up being a three-term u.s senator and uh, he's the ambassador to the uh, Court of St. James uh, again in the 1820s and uh, also had, runs for the, uh, on the national ticket. He runs uh, with Pinckney on the um, Rufus King. He's the vice presidential candidate. Uh, uh, in 1804, in 1808, he runs for the uh, presidency on the national ticket. He's actually the last Federalist to um, run for the presidency. Uh, which he did in 1816, losing to uh, James Monroe, who who had actually attended his wedding uh, many decades earlier in New York when they were both in the Confederation Congress. And uh, 
But I think, too, that we have to think of the King family. You know, he, he and his wife, Mary, had uh, seven children, um, five all sons who lived to adulthood. And uh, one of them, John Alsop King, was the first Republican governor of New York State in the 1850s. Another was the president of Columbia College, and another was active in the New York Chamber of Commerce, and um, so uh, a very active family, and um, and a very overlooked one, I, I think. So that's why it's uh, it's very important to me to to tell the story of uh, of Rufus King. Keith Machowski, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.